You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Jenny Dorsey, a chef, food writer, and executive director of Studio Atau, a nonprofit think tank that works on changing inequitable systems in food and beyond. We discussed how she went from business school to kitchens, cultural appropriation in fast casual restaurants, and launching a newsletter as a way to find her voice in writing. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was born in Shanghai, but I grew up in um, New York. My Both my parents um, were getting their PhDs at Albert Einstein University up in the Bronx. So I feel like when I was little, I ate a lot of just like food at home. I was My family was definitely the, why would you ever eat outside? You're wasting money sort of vibe. <laughs> so everything was at home. Like there was a lot of eggs and a lot of breads. And of course, every meal has to have a veg. So I kind of grew up with lots of vegetables and never really understood that idea of like, vegetables are gross and we don't, kids don't like vegetables. Um, I think like pea sprouts are like my favorite vegetable in the world. Um, ate a lot of tomato and egg growing up. I think that's like a classic Chinese staple. So things that were easy for, you know, young 20 something year old parents that had no cooking experience and worked all the time to make. (laughs) <laughs> did you grow up in the Bronx or did you grow up in a different borough? Yeah, we grew up uh, essentially in like the students compound within the Bronx. So there was some other yeah, stu- children of uh, fellow students that I hung out with. I felt like we occasionally were actually able to like go out and be with the rest of the Bronx. But a lot of times we were kind of confined in this like little area. And so didn't really honestly right. get as much uh, like interfacing with the world outside as I think would have been beneficial to growing up. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, no, I I remember Albert Einstein College from driving past. I went to Fordham. So I remember just being like, ah, the signs. That's all I know yeah. of it. I'm like, oh, the signs for Albert Einstein on the Pelham Parkway. <laughs> yep, yep. But that's so interesting to grow up in that kind of environment with you know, and, and yeah, and, and that's interesting because I think when we think of the Bronx, we think of Arthur Avenue and we think of like so much food diversity and that sort of thing. Do you go back now? Sometimes. I mean, I try, but I feel like I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. I didn't know to know. And that like, I, I right. feel sad about that all the time. Like I feel like elementary school, at least <laughs> I were, was able to go to public elementary and kind of like learn about the fact that there are such a diverse group of folks up in the Bronx. But so many times when we were just in the student compounds, we're so sheltered from everyone else. Yeah. You don't interact with anyone. And I think like this is now in retrospect, when I have kind of conversations around race and class and social status and immigration with my parents, they were so busy being students, like heads down that they had no concept of what was kind of like happening, which is unfortunate. But I think that is like, that's kind of a manifestation of how so many things happen here in the U.S. is that you have your own little silo and you don't realize you're in a silo until you're out of it. And that can take years that could take your entire life. Right. Well, what was your route to getting into food and becoming a chef? 
So I had always been like a food person growing up. I loved eating. Uh, I planned all of our vacations around uh, eating. So when I was little, you know, my parents really liked going to Vegas. This is after we had moved to Seattle. We weren't going from New York to Vegas because you know, <laughs> of the like buffets and like there's a lot of food and like, you know, it's fairly inexpensive to go and have a good time. And so I remember, I think I was like 10, we were going to Vegas and we never gambled or did anything. We would just like go eat at buffets and I'd be like, this one has this and this one has that. And it was all about the food. And so my mother and uh, father had always been like, yeah, you kind of like food, but that's not a real career. It was never really encouraged or like allowed, I think. And so I never really thought about food in that way. I just saw it as like a hobby or a thing that I want, I liked and wanted to do, but not as a thing that I should pursue, so to speak. It wasn't until after I had started my first job out of college, I was in management consulting and realized, first of all, how miserable I was, but specifically because I was within fashion and luxury goods. I had this kind of sad moment where I realized so many of the people higher up all the food chain than me, they were filling their hearts, you know, their metaphorical hearts, so to speak, with just stuff. Like, and I could see it, you know, and you never want to be in a position as a really junior person where you look at someone who's, you know, supposed to have their shit together and seems to have it all. And you just feel really sad for them. And that's how I felt all the time. And I don't want to editorialize on their behalf. Maybe they're super happy. But what I interpreted was a lot of sadness. And I realized, like, I don't like this job. I never liked this job. I don't know why I wanted to be in this industry. I think it was for the glitz and the glamour. But inside, I'm really unhappy. So what can I do about it? What is the thing that makes me happy? And naturally, I was like, okay, I'm going to go cook. I'm going to go, you know, take this advanced, like, cooking techniques class at the Institute of Culinary Education. At first, it was just recreational. But soon enough, I was like, no, I really want I want something formal. I want, I don't want the the sheltered student experience again. I really want to be fabricating mm -hmm. my lamb. I want to be breaking down the chickens. I want to be making the stock, not just have stock delivered to me from stewarding. So ended up going to a full diploma program at school and wanted to give myself a chance in the industry. Ended up leaving. I was going to Columbia Business School right afterwards. Ended up leaving that and was like, I just need to figure out food. I need to at least give it a chance to try and see where right. I end up. Well, you know, and then do you think that your training and your experience, even if it wasn't what you ultimately wanted to do, and then some studies at Columbia Business School, do you think that they influence your work in food now that you are working in food media? You're also working in activists. You, you've founded Studio Tout. Like, do those things still crop up? Do they still kind of aid your thinking? Yeah, I think a lot of what I saw at culinary school really shaped how the work that I do now, just seeing, first of all, like poor representation of how things are taught and just the lack of, I think, empowerment that culinary students and in general, a lot of more junior level workers within food, restaurant, hospitality, beverage are often imbued with because you're constantly being told that your opinions don't matter and that you don't, you know, you don't have the right to stand up for yourself and that the system is just like this. We were constantly indoctrinated in culinary school that like, you just got to go to these stages and you're never going to get paid and you're going to work, you know, a gazillion hours and make $10 an hour to start. And that's normalized. And like, that is a huge problem if we're normalizing literally hundreds of thousands of students to that sort of mentality every year. So I don't think I had the vocabulary for it then, but a lot of the micro and macro aggressions that I faced in culinary school really informed like the desire to even try to do this work. And in a, 
I guess, a positive way, my interactions at business school, which I don't want to hate on too much because I did marry someone from business (laughs) school, but business school was such a jarring and terrible experience in that I was like, wow, are we really just out here to compete and make money? This kind of idea of constant scarcity, constant competition, it's so toxic. And what is the real value that we're trying to add to society at large? But I think it's hard to get into that kind of mode when you're surrounded by people who are just telling you about their Goldman Sachs resume or telling you how you know great they have it because they made so much money last year. Like you, it's so easy to get into this keeping up with the Joneses sort of mentality. And I think shifting from graduating from culinary school and then three days later going to Columbia Business School, that like that juxtaposition made me realize like these we're in two different worlds. We're not talking to each other because we're so siloed in both respects, like there is so much, there's so much that we should be doing. We could be improving both industries or industries under Columbia and then food, hospitality in general. But right now we like don't even understand the problems each other are facing. We, and we don't have any empathy for them. So how, like, what do we do about that? How do we bridge that gap? Right. And so then when, when did you start to move toward food media? It's kind of a strange roundabout way, I guess. I first went into work at restaurants, kind of had to do that as part of my culinary school and externship, started working corporate food R&D. And I think from all the just like toxicity that I've absorbed over those years, wanted to find some sort of outlet to write, write about it, talk about it. And I mean, as you are aware, it's really hard to land some of those more difficult reported pieces off the bat. So, so I had to, you know, start with the rigmarole of doing like basic recipes and then maybe a little bit more like covered recipes with head notes. And then slowly was able to move into, oh, I really want to tackle really complex or uncomfortable topics within food media, who's going to give me an opportunity to do that? And I think that journey also uncovered a lot of these problems that we have in food media of like, who gets exposure, who gets airtime, what kind of writing and language do we pay credence to and which ones do we not like? Ran into that constant issue of, can you really cover issues that aren't Asian American, right? Um, So I think that journey continued to inform like, okay, food media is a place that we can talk about it, but it's also not the end all be all of how we're going to bring about justice or change. Right. And do you think things have gotten better since you started to work in food media? I I, I don't know. I would love to hear what you think. Because I I feel like I get this question and I'm always like, I want to say yes, I think so. But a lot of times I I'm not sure because I feel like optically we are saying and doing a lot of the right things, but I think systemically, have we really made those big changes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, my perspective right now is is very skewed because I'm very focused on my newsletter. I think I've like stopped really paying attention to food magazines for the most part. You know, I get Bon Appetit in the mail and I read it and and I it's it's very thin these days. Um but, you know, I, and I don't say that to insult them. I'm just, you know, they, they have a huge reach and everything. And, and they've really hired um, a lot of writers that I really enjoy. And so that's really great. But, you know, you know, we're not, you know, seeing that much. Yeah, we're not seeing a real, you know, maybe this is the thing. And I would like to ask you about it because this, this brings up 
a lot of your work with Studio Atau, I think, which is, you know, how much does representation count if the the stories and the narratives remain sort of the same, you know? So what is your perspective on like when you can have the representation, but but maybe things don't really change at a deeper level? You know, like you were mentioning, there's this pervasive idea in the media that people who, non-white people can't write about anything but their own background and their own you know, and, and they don't, and that is very pervasive. That continues that, that I haven't seen really change in a, in a real way. And so, you know, in your mind, you know, how much does representation count for in food media? Yeah. I mean, I think representation is always going to be important. Like, of course, it's important that if you're a new reader to Bon App or Food and Wine and you're flipping through the pages and you see a face that looks like yours, of course, that's always going to be good. But I think what, when I say like optically, we are doing that. However, the power dynamics of like, who picks those people, who gets to green light the pitches, who gets to shape the pitches, who gets to censor some of the words, like that sort of chain of command is the the, the multiple steps behind representation that I would like to see more change in. And there's a lot of obstacles to all sorts of those things. One of the things that we had been tackling through these like two white papers with Well and Good and The Kitchen for the last year, so over, over 2021, is how do we hire, you know, more BIPOC in these diverse leadership roles? And a lot of the problems that HR is saying over and over again is the pipeline is empty. There's no BIPOC in the pipeline. And yeah, and it's like, yes and no, right? I'm sure there is, but there probably isn't as many because BIPOC are regularly not promoted at the same, you know, cadence. They're not, you know, like they don't get the same titles, etc. So the pipeline probably does look a little bit empty. And so then it becomes, well, is that one institution trying to hire additional diverse leadership going to be the person that trains that leadership? Are they going to start, you know, working with BIPOC students so that they can move them up the promotion ladder so that in 10 years, you're going to have an exec editor that naturally, you know, is BIPOC, right? That's a level of commitment that far exceeds just finding um, a BIPOC woman and promoting them. Uh, it takes a lot more planning. It takes a lot more investment, time, money, energy. And I think that's kind of the where a lot of organizations are doing that. Well, that's not on us. That's that's an industry problem. That's not for us to solve. And that's what makes me nervous in terms of long term change. Right, right. And I think, you know, there's similar problems in terms of, you know, class or education level where the same, you know, you have a whole team of the people who have the same economic background, the same type of education background. Mm -hmm. And I I think that also really comes through in terms of the content, which, and that comes through in terms of who you're speaking to as your audience is like, you know, if you're, and, and that's a really interesting thing when you're writing about food, because the people you're writing about in restaurants, et cetera, are going to be probably super different from the types of people in the magazine office, you know, and, and that's such a disconnect. And I feel like at a lot of, that's a big loss too. That's a loss for who your audience can be. Like if you're not even necessarily speaking to the people who work in, to the concerns of people who work in restaurants, that's a real loss. And, and it's a big problem to deal with. And like you were saying, it's a problem of, a lack of commitment from folks in these higher up positions to put in that effort to find those people and to, you know, really be like a a mentor to people, even if they look different, come from a different kind of place, uh, come from a different kind of education. And, and that reluctance 
it shows in how much people are really, you know, engaging with the work and, and it shows in what the work is because, you know, I think that it's been a really big loss of opportunity to talk about restaurant workers in a real way in the media, especially since the pandemic. I feel like it's it's been a bit, there's been a, a you know, that distance has, has been very apparent lately. I don't, as someone who has worked in restaurants, you know, like how, how has this time been for you as someone who does work in the media, but also has that experience? Yeah, I think it's tough because you have folks who are on the ground, very concerned with, you know, day to day, like, is my restaurant going to stay open or not? Do I don't know if I'm going to get, you know, this paycheck or not. I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on with unemployment. And then to ask them to also know kind of like the fancy language terms that often are used when writers write for other writers is there's a huge disconnect when you're supposedly supposed to be like helping them under navigate this landscape. Um, because what we're getting in terms of directives from the government was confusing enough when we're talking about PPP or when we're talking about, you know, if some people, PPPs can be forgiven or whatnot. There's already this barrier of people being able to access some of those funds, even if they were meant for everyone. Um, not before we even start talking about how undocumented folks were not even able to access that. But yeah, and then when you're covering it as a food media publication, like who are you really? interviewing? Do you really have, are you taking the time to really interview people on the ground versus talking to a PR company that represents a restaurant group that can easily pull you a couple sous chefs to interview versus like getting into the kitchens and really asking the garde manger who's been there for 10 years or the porter on this, you know, and asking them like, Hey, how, how are you dealing with this problem? I think that's like a, a level of disconnect food media has always mm-hmm. faced. And I, again, is one of those things, I don't know how to I don't know how to fix that because folks are not getting paid enough to cover their stories. They don't have enough lead time to write the stories that they want to write. There's not enough, you know, fact checking that's happening. There's like, it's kind of this, uh, I don't know, it's like a domino effect of all the problems from the top down. Exactly. Yeah. Well, with Studio Atau, the nonprofit think tank where you're executive director, there's been, a, you know, a very broad approach to changing inequitable systems. And so I was wondering if you can explain its founding and the work the nonprofit does. Yeah, so Studio Tao is a community-based think tank. And what we mean by that is how do we conduct research? How do we um, create spaces where we can really listen to the needs and recommendations of community members that are most affected by various different inequitable problems and actually champion and put energy and money and time to support their recommendations from the ground up instead of trying to implement solutions to fix these problems from the top down. And I think because of the very complicated, convoluted nature of the nonprofit industrial complex, which we can get into <laughs> if people want, as well as think tanks, which kind of get wrapped up in all of that and academia as well. A lot of times you have philanthropists and, you know, big level donors who see a problem and they have their own take on what the solution is. The example I often use is like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has done a lot of great work in the world, but there's a lot of critique on how they handle like child, um, classroom access and their focus on getting small class sizes, which arguably like small class sizes probably is great. But was that the number one thing that communities with, you know, not great educational outcomes wanted to see in terms of structural change? Maybe not. Did they bother to ask anyone and figure that out before kind of putting all of that energy into it? And so what we've really tried to do is First, if we see a problem like equitable representation and food media, talk to the people who are getting affected by that and say, like, what are the changes you want to see? 
Is it more leadership at the top? Is it changing pitch guidelines? Is it more transparency? Like what is the things that you think would most make like the biggest impact to make your life better, to make you feel like your work is more equitable, um, that you have a space to have your voice be heard in so these sort of companies. So that's kind of a, our approach in general. And our main thing for this year and next year is looking at gentrification and hospitality, which is a whole Oof. whole can of worms. Yeah. That is really exciting though, because that is that is such a complicated topic. Yes. I, I am so excited to see what you come up with. Yeah. No, I'm I'm reading a lot about gentrification because of where I, well, obviously I'm from New York. So it's, there, there's gentrification there in New York City. Yeah. Um, but here in Old San Juan, it's just so rapid and virulent and it's having such a huge impact on the culture. And it's just a really, really, really intense situation to, to live yeah. among. And, and also, you know, it, yeah, and it's, it's just, it's happening so rapidly that I don't think anyone is thinking and not, well, locals are thinking enough about what it means, but in terms of like the, the politicians and everything, there's just really no concern or no regulation and just selling everything. And, and in terms of the food, it actually has, you know, people always think of the impact of gentrification on the food in that it becomes like more bourgeois and inaccessible. And like the impact here has interestingly been that the food is worse. <laughs> and so like because locals can't open places because it's too expensive and it, the you know, it's harder to get the capital to do so. And in general, like you know, the, the stat is 85% of food is imported to Puerto Rico. And so usually it's, you know, like we have really poor quality onions in the supermarket, like the garlic is from Spain, et cetera, et cetera. So like, there's like one or two good local restaurants in Old San Juan. And then other than that, it's like, it's food for tourists. It's mm -hmm. fast food. There's one local fast, like a couple of local fast food places, but it's like, it's a very interesting thing because you always hear that like, oh, if they, people bring the money and then they bring gentrification, like, you know, the way you tell that is through the food, but, or it's through the coffee maybe, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, coffee's already part of the culture, so they can't really do anything with the coffee. And so it's, um, it's just an interesting dynamic because, it's just, it's the opposite of, of how I was told or had always read that gentrification works with food and with hospitality. And so I'm, I'm super like interested in this topic right now because there's so much to understand that hasn't, that isn't as simplified as people make it out to be, you know? And so I'm really excited to see that work that you guys are putting out, you know, and you, you do do such interesting work around like how cultural and political realities impact food and the way people get it. Like, you know, you wrote about cultural appropriation in fast casual restaurants for Eater. I wanted to ask, you know, how did that story idea come about? Like, why did you see fast casual as worthy of serious critique? Because I have, I was like, oh, reading it. And I read it when it came out and I was reading it again to interview you. And I'm like, does anyone really talk about fast casual in a rigorous way? And people should, because like it is the way a lot of people are interacting with these cuisines. Yeah. I think a lot of um, what I wanted to, well, maybe not just for that piece, but that, that piece had a whole just fall out. Let's just put it like that. Just like, in, 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 now. Um, but I think what I wanted to do is point out these 
systems in that we interact with in our lives where we're like normalizing things and fast casual, I think is often not scrutinized because we kind of dismiss it. We see it as a quick bite to eat. You know, what harm is Chipotle doing if I'm just grabbing a burrito there? And, you know, whereas then we put a lot of worthy and important attention on things like lucky leaves or like, you know, lucky cricket. And those absolutely should be critiqued. But why not the thing that you're quickly grabbing to go? Why not, you know, the thing that you are probably interacting with way more than this random restaurant, you know, in Minnesota that you might not ever visit? I think because of like internet outrage culture, it's easier to be angry at these kind of like discrete things versus acknowledging how these small little occurrences in your everyday life actually end up shaping your worldview. I think back to like, you know, as a culinary student, as I mentioned earlier, it's not that anyone comes out and tells you, you know, you're garbage and you're not worth more than $10 an hour. It's just something that you implicitly learn over the course of your time there. And I think that's a lot more insidious and toxic. And we really do need to be not only pointing that out for ourselves, but getting, I think, surfacing that for people who are still going through it, like the next generation of students, so that they can identify it when their mentor tells them that, when their, when their instructor tells them that, when their career counselor says something like that. Right, right, right. And, you know, you recently launched, because uh, we're talking about a lot of serious things, and now I'm like, I'm sort of, I think we've sort of enacted maybe the thought process of where <laughs> you launched a newsletter to do more like personal writing, loose writing, because you are, you know, known for, you know, the 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 very rigorous looks at you know uh, diversity and and discrimination in the food industry and so you know what how has your experience been doing a newsletter so far yeah I mean newsletter has been so strange but I think the big thing I've learned is just how differently I'm writing for the newsletter versus for any publication and just how much of my voice I'm really tailoring like I think I just didn't notice because I never wrote for myself so I know right. the kind of tone I need to strike for serious scenes or for Washington post or whatever, you know, you read enough there where you get it. And I'm not discounting that kind of writing. And I very much enjoy it. And I'm going to continue reading the New York Times. But like, (laughs) now I kind of see it. I'm like, oh, that there's like, I don't structure if I were to write for, you know, I'm not going to structure my sentences like that. I love to have like long things that are in parentheses, that probably should be in parentheses. But I'm like, wow, that's like a that instead of feeling like that is a problem or that is there's something inherently wrong with that, it's like, oh, that's actually like a quirk that I like to write in. Um, I remember years ago, I wrote this piece that was very personal and my editor shat all over it and was like, stop anthropomorphizing your food. You know, it was this whole thing. And that piece is fine. I'm fine with how it turned out. But I look back and I feel like, again, see, this is like those small things that get normalized is like, editors say that all the time. And I was like, there's something wrong with my writing style versus, oh, I'm just not writing in the tone that they want. Right. So the newsletter ha- has given me a little bit of that perhaps needed confidence to say, these are my personalities as a writer. I am allowed <laughs> to find value in them, even if it's not well suited for a bigger publication. Um, and also right. explore things that maybe some people don't want to talk about. Like, I wrote a thing about fan fiction and fandom and that was really fun. Like I just had a good time writing about it. And so I put my energy and time into that and I hope that people care. And I think people like the response was like, Oh, I never thought about this before. And this is that problem with food media or media in general is if you can't prove that people will care about it to start. You can't ever land the pitch, but once exactly. you actually get it out in the world, people did care. I don't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so interesting. And like, I found the same thing. And in my newsletter is like, oh, there is an audience for like cultural c- critique of like all these food issues, but also for like personal essays about like why I eat oatmeal every day. <laughs> like, you know, right. it's really, a sh- it's such a shocking thing, I think, because we have been trained, you know, to think that we have no story unless uh, people are already talking about it. And it's like, well, by the time people are already talking about it, it's like the story's boring, you know, they've taken the story and they've gone with it. And like, then it, it, you know, you have to find a new angle on it and, and that sort of thing. And like, I think there's so much value in, and this is, I guess, what we sort of lost over the last, in the 2010s, you know, the blogs kind of died out. And then, we lost this this really more informal and and raw and like voicey way of writing on the internet and like we had social media but it, at the same time it's very different and so i think newsletters i are giving like a, a little bit of a more formality and space and structure to the fact that people really do want that kind of work and want that kind of thinking and like miss that kind of like let me just hear what someone's thinking about something, even if they've never thought about it before, because that's true. Like a lot of people will still, if the writing is good and the writing is, you know, punchy and interesting, people are going to read about anything. Like, and and that's, I think something people have lost in like this obsession with like SEO and, and views, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I published something on Monday that was just like my thought process over a couple of weeks and like it's gotten 30,000 views, you know, in two days. And so it's like, that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> like for just like a person thinking out loud, like I think that there is more space for that. People want that than like, I don't know. It's just, it is, it is interesting. And my advice always to younger writers, and I've sent it twice today to two different people, <laughs> was like... You do have to write for editors, like, because now people think that they can just start a newsletter and then boom, career takes off. And it's like, no, that's not going to, it's probably not going to happen. You have to, you have to like, even though it hurts a lot of the time being edited, (laughs) especially when you're just starting out and like, you have to learn and you have, but at the same time, you know, you have to like figure out that balance for yourself of where you're comfortable with an editor, you know, taking away from your voice and, and sometimes where you you know where you can push back and, and that sort of thing, or you know when and where you can do a long parenthetical that that maybe <laughs> someone else would take <laughs> out. Like you you have to have that understanding of the rules to in order to break out of the rules. And and so that's it's interesting to hear you say that like the newsletter now has given you a whole new lease on writing because I think that that's true. But I do think you have to, and I mean, I don't want this to sound like gate keeping or whatever, but I do think you have to learn the basics first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to understand like where everybody, like where everybody's boundaries are, because you can't really, Mm -hmm. it's very difficult as a person who's starting any career writing or otherwise to set those boundaries for yourself. So the best way we usually go about them is by emulating other people's boundaries. So I think it's really valuable to have, you know, an experience at a corporate entity or a small organization or a nonprofit, whatever, because you start seeing how different people approach the world. And similarly with writing, if you don't ever get edited, you're never going to see other people's criteria of what they think good writing is or what they think good editing is or what they think something voicey or newsy is. And then you don't, you kind of can't set those parameters for yourself. And you also can't really discover like what you 
like I, I know what a voicey piece sounds like. Maybe I just don't want it to sound like that because that's not what I'm feeling right now. But you can't right. really have that kind of self-reflection without having the experience first. Oh, that's such a good way of putting it. <laughs> I'm going to steal your words <laughs> the next time. I'm going to send a, a copy of the, the transcript. But, you know, I wanted to ask because you do so much. You, you're writing for other outlets. You know, you're writing your newsletter. You, you do, you still are doing recipes. You still are working with Studio Tao. Tell, like, what are you hoping for this year, 2022? Yeah, I think the big theme for myself, uh, for myself personally this year is to create more and to create things that bring me joy. Because what I think is very hard for any sort of like creative type, whether a writer or a chef or whatnot, is at some point because of money, because of the world, you start creating things <laughs> for other people so much so that you kind of forget like what actually brings me joy? I have no idea. Sometimes I'm like sitting around <laughs> in my kitchen, like, what do I want to make today? I have, you know, and sometimes I do have that envy of people who like are pure content creators and they go in and they're like, I'm going to create content. What do I want to make? Because I feel like so, so much of that has been taken from me because I have to think about what other people want and not saying that content creators don't have that outside pressure as well. So that's number one for me for the newsletter is like, how do I explore things that I care about? If 100 people read it, so be it. It wasn't for them anyway. Yeah. I think it's really yeah. hard to have that mentality and I'm already struggling with it like three weeks into the year. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but for the studio, the big thing is sustainability. We have been actively trying to resist being part of the nonprofit industrial complex to not have all our funds come from big donors or corporations or grants and big philanthropists. but it's very difficult to not only make sure that we can employ people, but give them, you know, the employment length and the benefits and whatnot. And we're really struggling with that. And it's kind of a, what do we have to sacrifice in order to have some of the runway that we want without compromising our values? And I, we're struggling through that to be totally candid. Like it's just an ongoing struggle. Uh, I don't know how to fix it because the whole system is broken everyone's heard this before, so I won't belabor the point, but I, I, I don't know how to make it better. So we're just constantly, mm -hmm. I think we're just trying to do less and figure out if the, you know, we have four initiatives for this year, like how do we do them the best we can with what we have? Right. And is it on Patreon? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You can support on Patreon. You can also give one-time gifts. Um, but yes, both of those, we really would prefer most of our comes. Um, coming from the community because obviously like we don't want kind of this big overlord telling us we can't say this or you can say that. Right, right. That's very important. So how do you define abundance? Uh, I think it's feeling like you don't have to worry. I, abundance to me is kind of like the absence of scarcity. So you don't have to worry about, you know, the, the, the thought of being hungry, like never crosses your mind, right? Like right. it's the absence of that worry at all. So not having, I grew up in a very privileged environment where I wasn't worried about hunger and I wasn't worried about shelter. And I don't know what it feels like to, tr to truly be actively worried about that. And I think that is a, a feeling of abundance in its own way. I don't think it's necessarily about having more. It's about like this, yeah, a lack of, lack of worry. Right. I love that 
I love that definition of it. And for you, is cooking a political act? Yes, I think cooking is always a political act. And it doesn't have to be. And I think how people define political, right, of course, varies. For to me, it's like it's always an expression of like all the systems that be. For example, last Thanksgiving, um, it was the first time that we had a Thanksgiving after my father-in-law had passed. And my family had come down. My husband's family had come down. Cousins were there. And I made an active effort to make sure to make food that people probably have never had before so that, you know, what do they totally fit into the classic American Thanksgiving table? Probably not. But it were things that I knew that they probably would not be able or not have interest in going to those restaurants to experience themselves and could give a little bit of texture and nuance to the conversations, which already there is like, you know, there's kind of like a cultural gap, right? Because we have different cultures, we have different backgrounds, people live in different places. Um, so I think food served as both a connector in that way, but also as a way to kind of challenge people. And I think that is very political. We're, it wasn't like, hey, let's talk about Biden in this dish or whatnot. <laughs> it was more just like, let's talk about all of these interesting systems that brought this dish to be here. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy.